I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode of the China Power Podcast, we will discuss U.S.-China educational exchanges and their implications for the broader U.S.-China relationship. Education has long been an important mechanism for fostering people-to-people exchanges between the United States and China. During the 2019 to 2020 academic year, roughly 373,000 Chinese students studied in the United States. The U.S.-China education relationship has also brought significant financial benefits to the U.S. education system, with public and private donations coming from China and Hong Kong to U.S. universities totaling over a billion dollars since 2014. Yet, the COVID-19 pandemic and growing geopolitical competition between the United States and China have significantly strained educational exchanges between the two countries. In 2020, the Peace Corps folded its China program amid the pandemic, and that same year. Then President Donald Trump canceled U.S. Fulbright programs in China and Hong Kong. Chinese scholars in the U.S. have been investigated, sometimes improperly, by federal law enforcement over concerns about technology and IP theft. Members of Congress have also called for heightened scrutiny over Chinese government-funded Confucius Institutes. These developments have been compounded by a spike in anti-Asian sentiment in the United States amid the pandemic. Chinese actions have likewise strained academic exchanges between the two countries. Beijing has not released plans to reopen its borders to foreign students, leaving many U.S. scholars and students locked out of the country and waiting in limbo. Many major American study abroad programs in China have not resumed since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and several have been permanently canceled or moved out of the country, citing an increasingly hostile educational environment for foreign students. Here to discuss the changing dynamics in the U.S.-China educational relationship is Professor William C. Kirby, the Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration and T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies at Harvard University. Professor Kirby is also the chairman of the Harvard China Fund, the university's academic venture fund for China. He is also the faculty chair of the Harvard Center Shanghai, the first Harvard-wide university center located outside the United States. A lifelong advocate of U.S.-China educational exchange, Professor Kirby has spent his career extensively involved as a consultant and advisor for China educational programs, including serving as a senior advisor on China to Duke University and as chairman of the Academic Advisory Council for the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University. Professor Kirby was also the dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences from 2002 to 2006. Bill. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be with you. We are here today to discuss an important topic in U.S.-China relations that hasn't received as much attention these days in the news, and that is the state of bilateral academic exchanges. Bill, to begin, could you give us some background and describe the state of current U.S.-China educational exchanges? What do you see as the main factors shaping the existing relationship? Well, I think first of all, there are long-standing historical factors that shape them. Education has been one of the central parts of Chinese-American relations, really since the 1870s in the first Chinese educational mission to the United States. Certainly, by the turn of the last century, having a profound impact on the nature of higher education in China. And in more recent decades, it's had a profound impact on the capacity of American universities to internationalize education here at home. 
if you look at it at the present day, you have an enormous desire by young Chinese, and not to mention by the parents of young Chinese, it, parents are always the key to any educational market, to study in the United States. And why is that? I think there are several important reasons. Higher education is one industry in which the United States is still, at least for the moment, number one. And our universities have an extraordinary global reputation. Second, our universities and colleges have a great reputation for undergraduate education and for helping to shape the education of the whole person and not simply to train specialists. Young Chinese and children of ambitious Chinese parents, ambitious for their children, would like to send their children to the United States, not necessarily permanently, but in order to gain a global perspective on the world, to gain skills in some areas like math or engineering, computer science may or may not be any more advanced than they can be found in China, but to be tested as it were against the best in the world. Then these students will return to China with skills and friendships that will make a difference for them, their families, and we hope for the future of US-China relations. We have a much smaller number before COVID of American students studying in China, but a very important number of people who have gone on to very significant roles in the US-China relationship or in the realm of US-China business relations. But the primary driver from American universities in their engagement in mainland China and physically in China is that we have some of the best research universities in the world. China is the fastest growing system of research universities anywhere in the world in quality as well as quantity. And if we are to maintain ourselves as the leading center of research universities, we have to interact with a fast-growing system that is emerging in China as well. And we have at my university and at many others, faculty across the university, from the medical school to the law school to schools of public health, who really need to be in or work with China in order to advance their own research. So there are different driving factors for these exchanges, but they're very important for both sides. Thank you, Bill. Just to make sure, have these exchanges been growing in the past two years, given the pandemic? Well, they've been diminished significantly by the pandemic. Of course, they were growing very substantially up until the pandemic. We will have to take a wait-and-see approach to see what happens post-pandemic. But with the pandemic, it became virtually impossible for anybody outside of China to study in China at least a highly limited number of visas for this purposes. And the Americans also severely limited the visas for people to study in person in the United States, new students to study in person. That happily has changed, and the Biden administration has renewed the giving of visas to Chinese students to study in American universities. The research partnerships that take place in China, they can be pursued remotely. It's remarkable what you can do remotely. But they've been certainly diminished significantly in number and intensity because China has closed itself up to protect itself in the global COVID world. The big question is, when will it reopen for a more normal level of academic business? I don't know the answer to that. It is remarkable how significant so the hunger of students still to be engaged in China is. This Harvard China Fund that I oversee, we have an undergraduate internship program at Harvard College. And for many years, this was the largest undergraduate internship program in China for, of all the internship programs at Harvard. 
and we would send as many as 60 students a year every summer to work in Chinese companies or international companies working in China or NGOs or various areas of social service in China, in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan with an enormously positive impact on our students, but also on their hosts. And we have continued that, to my surprise, at about a third of the level by having virtual internships. I think it's only possible to do that up to a point. We've navigated this moment so far, but if we have to continue to do that for a longer period of time, we'll have a much more diminished set of interactions. You mentioned how these exchanges have shaped the views and perspectives of individuals, some of which have gone on to have important roles in shaping the U.S.-China relationship. Could you discuss a bit more from a historical perspective, how have U.S.-China academic exchanges impacted the United States-China as well as a larger bilateral relationship? The entire history of higher education in China is international in origin. There is not a leading Chinese university today, and you can think of the most famous ones, that is not international both in origin, the models that it follows, and indeed in architecture. So take, for example, the founding of Tsinghua University in 1911. Tsinghua University, today one of the two greatest universities in China and one of the greatest in the world, was founded with returned American funds from the Boxer Indemnity. And its purpose was to educate young Chinese as a prep school to send them to the United States. Its first campus is modeled to some considerable degree on a nice Midwestern campus, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, because it was the president of that university who convinced President Theodore Roosevelt to remit that boxer indemnity to found this educational institution, which was to be a foundation of U.S.-China educational relations. Tsinghua would go on to be the greatest university in China, greatest comprehensive university in the 1920s and in the 1930s. The man who is my doctoral mentor, John King Fairbank, I was his last doctoral student, but he learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University under a gentleman named Zhang Tingfu, another boxer indemnity scholar who had studied at Oberlin and got his doctorate at Columbia. We have an intersection of our educational systems really from the founding of modern Chinese university. Or we can look at Yanjing University, which had a close relationship with Harvard, a private college in Beijing, a beautiful Chinese-style campus designed by a New York architectural firm that is now the campus of Peking University, one of the other two great and leading universities of China. Educational exchanges centrally important to Chinese and American universities, particularly to Chinese universities, before the revolution of 1949, then all cut off as China looked more toward the Soviet bloc than toward the West. But at the beginning in the 1980s, these relationships revived and now significantly expanded. At the same time, American universities have benefited enormously from scholars from China. Once we allowed them to settle here after the Chinese revolution in 1949, we allowed a considerable number of Chinese scholars to settle in the United States, and after 1989 as well, after Tiananmen. In more recent decades, as immigration policies have been lessened, have been lightened, as immigration policies have become more liberal in the United States, we have had the capacity to welcome at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level, large numbers of Chinese students. And I want to emphasize how important that is for American universities. China, of course, is a very large country, but it has an increasingly powerful and excellent secondary school system, particularly in its larger cities. It has more of the best human talent, of human capital, than any other country in the world. And our capacity to attract some small proportion of that to our institutions is to our benefit. 
particularly if you look at graduate education. Graduate schools, the great graduate schools of the United States look all over the world for the absolute best scholars to advance scholarship and research, to advance knowledge into the next generation. Only if you can look unimpeded across the globe will you have the chance of being the best. So anything that impedes the flow of talent across the Pacific does harm to both countries. Fascinating. In terms of the current state of flow of talent across the Pacific, some have characterized U.S.-China educational exchanges as asymmetric and unequal in scope and potentially running counter to U.S. national interests. What you described above suggests a very different picture. I would love your thoughts on this. I'm also interested in your views of Confucius Institutes. There's been quite a bit of concern over the lack of transparency behind how the PRC funds these institutions. Some argue that Confucius Institutes provide the Chinese government undue leverage, access, and influence within U.S. schools. What do you think? It's a great, great question. The flow of students is unequal. And if you recall, when uh, Secretary Clinton was Secretary of State, she tried very hard to promote a program by which many, many more Americans would be able to study in China. And that made some progress in that time, but not nearly enough. And part of it is that Americans, in many institutions, somewhat more parochial than our Chinese counterparts. You have lots of study abroad programs in lots of American colleges and universities, but too many of them are what I would call island programs. You have to have your own faculty member take a bunch of students, set them up in a kind of a cocoon by which you'll have language and other cultural immersion. You know, what country do the largest number of American students study abroad in? It's England. And of course, it is a foreign country. And indeed, they speak a different language, but it's not the same. And so I think the challenge is really on the American side to be more internationalist in our education and to challenge our students more to become, have the capacity linguistically and otherwise to be citizens of the world. Related to that is, of course, you cannot graduate from a Chinese university and you can't actually do well in the examinations to get into one unless you know English. However, it turns out you can graduate from an American university without knowing Chinese. When I was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, I had the idea that maybe we could equal it and just say that everybody who goes to Harvard should know Chinese by the time they graduate. There is enormous and growing interest in the study of Chinese language among young Americans. In 2017, K-12 students, 400,000 American students were studying Chinese. One of the most pioneer programs, and this goes back three or more decades, is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Extraordinary program that began a very long time ago, but is still absolutely state of the art because many American parents believe that for their children to have a truly global future, some knowledge of Chinese and of China is going to be important to that. And we have in 2020, at least 200,000 American students studying Chinese in American colleges and universities. These numbers could be larger, to be sure, but they do exist. Now, these programs, when you think of educational exchanges, there are a few that are national in scope, like the Fulbright program, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But almost all of them, 99.9%, are institution to institution, done from the bottom up. College A in the United States with College B in China, University A with University B, or sometimes a department in one college with a department in another, say, in a Chinese university. And these succeed to the degree that there are faculty members uh, and 
student constituencies that have them endure over time. But they exist because American colleges and universities and their Chinese counterparts believe them to be in their own interests. It's not something dictated by the United States government. And so it's not at all, again, has anything to do, quite frankly, with U.S. national interests, as far as I can see. On the Confucius Institutes, this is to me, you know, I suppose it's a bad pun in an era of communist rule in China, but this strikes me as a red herring. There are Confucius Institutes, many as 400 at one point, all over the world, teaching Chinese language and culture, sometimes extremely well, sometimes perhaps not as well, that they are somehow a pernicious influence within the walls of American or European or Australian or other universities. I have yet to see significant evidence of. I have spoken at a number of these. I've spoken at one in Berlin, for example, that is an extraordinarily scholarly enterprise overseen by a senior faculty member of the Free University of Berlin. It is an open place for discussion and debate. The worry about Confucius Institute tells us more about ourselves than it tells us about these institutes. They're all ancillary to any American universities. They're not separate. American universities often, or colleges, will sign on to being part of one or affiliated with one in order to enhance their Chinese language teaching capacity, but they do not determine the curriculum in an American college or university. The biggest criticism that I have heard is from some in China who think that they're simply too expensive, and if their mission was to improve the global view of China, they have failed. They should perhaps be diminished, but I don't worry about them in the least. I think it tells us sadly a little bit about our own paranoia that it does about the nature of these enterprises. They're not the same as a Goethe Institute or an Alliance Française, but they're probably closer to that than we care to admit. That's a really important point to flag that these Confucius Institutes are all ancillary to the two U.S. colleges and universities, and students have a choice to participate in the program or not. I want to pivot a bit and ask you about the different education systems in order to understand both sides of the exchange. How would you characterize China's education system? What are some of the key differences between the U.S. versus Chinese education system? There are many things if you look at it today, and you'll be surprised at how similar in certain aspects these two systems are. They're both very large. They're both very differentiated with different types of institutions. Most people don't know that more than a quarter of Chinese higher education institutions are private colleges and universities, some of them for profit. Most people don't know that a ever larger, stunning percentage of young Chinese now can go to university, as a large number of young Americans can go to university who generations ago would not have been able to do so. Among the differentiators is that our system grew through a massive expansion in the 1950s and the 1960s and has been pretty much steady state in size ever since. And also educational mobility in the United States, the percentage of young people who go to college and university in the United States is also pretty much plateaued over the last several decades. Whereas China has moved from a much smaller system to a much larger system, but still moving very fast indeed. In 1978, at the end of the Cultural Revolution in China, there were less than 1 million students in Chinese universities. In 1990, still only 2 million students. In the year 2000, 6 million students in Chinese universities. By the year 2007, 23 million students in Chinese universities. Things moving very fast. And I remember I had a lunch with the Minister of Education in the year 2007, and I said to him, your statistics as last year say that you have 23 million students in universities today. And he said, yes, that's right. By dessert, the number was 26 million. Today, the number is over 40 million. 
So the United States has, depending on how you measure it, between 15 and 20 million students in institutions of higher education. China has gone in a two-decade span from being half or less the size of the American system to being more than twice the size. There are great strains in that, but there are also enormous accomplishments to be seen in that. And the leading universities in China have grown by leaps and bounds in quality, not just in size, over the same period. If you're familiar with the systems of global rankings, Tsinghua University, I think it's in the 2021 QS ranking, one of the international rankings, ranked number 14 in the world. Who might be number 17? Yale University, this small university in Southern Connecticut, now at least outranked in that particular ranking by Tsinghua University, which ranks higher in many of these rankings than all but two of the Ivy League, so-called Ivy League schools. It's a remarkable revolution in higher education that is going on in China today with enormous strength. Now, what are the areas of challenge that both U.S. and Chinese universities have? They have challenges of giving equal access to higher education. Educational access in China has grown enormously over time as the capacity for individuals to attend some form or another of college has increased, but access to the absolute best universities, much, much more difficult. You want to go to Peking University, you have a 40% better chance of getting into it if you are a resident of Beijing than if you are a student in Guizhou or in Yunnan or elsewhere. And of course, that's true in terms of the feeder schools that go to universities. The leading American universities, Harvard, Princeton, but also to the degree that public finances allow, Michigan, Berkeley, they have put enormous effort into large-scale financial aid for individuals of less means. Chinese universities have some of that, but not quite enough of it. So the number of poor and rural students that go to China's leading universities, the absolute elite, that has actually fallen over the last decade. So we share that problem of unequal access. What many people will say is the biggest difference between Chinese and American universities, however, is in the realm of governance. American universities have either a board of regents, a public university, board of trustees, a corporation such as Yale and Harvard. And normally, not always, the purpose of those boards is to insulate the university from intrusion into how things are taught and learned at the university to maintain a high degree of academic freedom. This was one of the central founding principles of all of the leading Chinese universities in the pre-communist era in the first half of the 20th century. But today, Chinese universities all have a party secretary as well as a president. And under President Xi Jinping, it's been made clear that the party secretary is number one, the president is number two, and a high degree of ideological control has been growing in Chinese universities. And there are required political study courses, as there have been throughout the communist period, on Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, and now the thought of President Xi. Just imagine where American universities would be if there had been a required curriculum in the thought of President Trump. Thank you. That's really quite an impressive growth and trajectory for Chinese universities. You mentioned some of the challenges that Chinese universities face. Could you also discuss what are some of the obstacles U.S. students encounter when studying in China? For example, do these Communist Party ideology courses make China a less attractive destination for U.S. students? Well, actually, no, it doesn't appear to be the case. And actually visiting an environment where you can watch the tensions, because when you watch people being forced to recite things that you know they may not believe, it's actually quite fascinating to see. 
because these uh, Chinese students are not foolish and they're not at all ignorant. And they're some of the best students I have ever taught anywhere. But under the programs that many Americans study in China, for example, there are now a series, not just American, but also American, British, and other joint venture universities in China. So Duke Kunshan University or NYU Shanghai, you take those two universities, they have absolute freedom of discussion and expression within the campus. And they've negotiated very clear rules of engagement. Chinese universities, their internet is not censored. Chinese university students may not be able to gain automatically through immediate access everything that they wish on the internet. They all have, if they wish it, access to global news and so on, just as you and I do through VPNs, you know, virtual private networks, or other forms. So they are not intellectually cut off from the world. But even in a period of greater political pressure within China, these universities have had, certainly to my knowledge, no reported instances of Chinese censorship or intrusion on the classroom. You know, I've given lectures in any event at uh, Duke Kunshan University, which is a remarkable and beautiful campus. It's a residential liberal arts college, which has the capacity to be as influential in its time as Yanjing University was in the first half of the 20th century. And I've taught also at another program that I advised, Schwarzman College at Tsinghua University, a graduate program in global studies that has an extraordinary faculty from Tsinghua and around the world, an extraordinary student body uh, from China and around the world. I see these as special education zones. They are zones in which really anything goes. And they have been remarkably successful. And it is certainly the, the leaders, presidents of Tsinghua University, of Wuhan University, which is Duke's partner, of Shanghai, East China Normal University in Shanghai, the partner of NYU Shanghai, they have all promoted the educational autonomy of these institutions. And they see it as in their collective interest and in China's long-term interest. It's just something that we will need to watch and see going ahead. They're off to a strong start in a stormy sea. Bill, I have to use this opportunity to ask you about Harvard's recent move of its Chinese language instruction program from Beijing to Taiwan. I read that this is a result of logistical reasons and reportedly unfriendly attitudes at Beijing Language and Culture University. Do you think this signals a larger trend of Chinese programs moving from the mainland to Taiwan? Well, I would stress that, first of all, the Harvard Beijing Academy, which was in partnership with Beijing Language and Cultural University, was an extremely successful program. It did transformative work for students from Harvard and from other universities who studied there. And we are very grateful for the partnership that we had with Beijing Language and Culture University. And it was an excellent partnership. In terms of language programs, and this is true anywhere in the world, so much depends, and in this case, it's absolutely 100% true, not on macro politics, but on local logistics. What are the classrooms available? What are the constraints on dormitories, in other words? Beijing Culture and Language University, I can't speak to all of the details, but it's been a very successful university. And in a fast-growing higher education environment, it is more constrained in space and in other capacities, perhaps, than itself would like. Two plus years ago, we made the determination to start a new program in Taiwan, where we had an offer of extraordinary set of logistical and other supports. And so I'm not going to be in the least critical of our colleagues in Beijing, who are excellent partners, but it reminds me of maybe 15, 20 years ago, what was then the leading American language program in Chinese anywhere in the world. It was in Taipei. 
And because of classroom and space and other constraints, that program moved to Beijing. This happens in the world of language programs, and it is the judgment of those who are actually in charge of the language instruction, where best can they serve the students that they wish to serve. But I can guarantee you this was a move that was determined you know, two and a half years ago, yet we couldn't act on it because of COVID, because it was, there was no program over the last couple of years. But it has absolutely nothing to do with high politics. Thank you, Bill. I want to turn now to another set of questions looking at Chinese students in the United States. I'm interested in how they view the atmosphere here and what attracts them. Uh, given the more competitive U.S.-China relations, we've also seen an, a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. From what you see, are Chinese students still interested in studying in the United States? And is this interest the same now as prior to the pandemic? I think it's too early to actually test because the pandemic is still continuing in so many countries, but I think it's likely to have an impact. That is to say, I hear from my own Chinese students here, both in the undergraduate college and in the business school, of a sense of a greater tension, certainly than I can ever remember. They believe they see it also in the classroom and the way in which things about China are taught, or at least can be taught. And it is something to take with actually great concern because this kind of racial attitudes and prejudice are given support often from the absolute top. And it's over the last four or five years that this has risen to a very high level in the United States. And I would hope and expect that our current leadership would do everything possible to change that rhetoric. You know, public opinion on these kind of issues is highly malleable. When you think about it, Richard Nixon went to China in 1972, shook hands, and made a kind of entente cordiale with Mao Zedong, who was one of the great tyrants of the 20th century. And China was then so much more closed, so much more repressive, so much more backward than it is today in every respect. And yet it was an extraordinarily positive mood in the United States that received President Nixon on his return and a great surge in positive interest in China today. I think it's up to leadership in order to set a proper and good example. Chinese Americans are as American as anybody else, of course, and they are central to the strength of this country. But also those who come from China for four to eight or more years in order to study have to be and need to be as welcome as anyone. They contribute enormously to our society. So I worry a lot about this. I know that our president, Mary Bacco, and all leading American university presidents that have been faced with this issue have spoken out strongly against this. National moods are often set from the top, and I would hope that the American government would begin to do so more forcefully and on a regular basis. Bill, let me just ask you one more question on this before we start wrapping up. I'm interested in your views on the Department of Justice's China Initiative. From your perspective, has this China initiative been successful in rooting out academic espionage? And how is this initiative generally received in academic circles? I would not regard it as successful in any context that I have seen so far. You have a number of cases that have been brought, individuals either indicted or placed under suspicion, only to have charges dropped much, much later. You have a profiling, truly a racial profiling, of a certain number of scholars on the basis of their interaction with or in China that may have nothing to do with the work that they do as a researcher or as a professor. You have, sadly, the individuals who are tasked with carrying this out 
do not have language capacity by and large, do not have the research knowledge or capacity in order to make the judgments that sometimes ought to have come before indictments. And so I think so far it's been a rather significant embarrassment to the United States. And the idea that you would have a simply a China initiative as opposed to an academic security initiative is really more than a bit distressing. We have friends all over the world who spy on us. Some of the biggest espionage issues over the last several decades have come from close allies of the United States, including Israel. No one of these nations and no university, no country can lead alone in this. They are part of a shared world of experiences, shared world of research, a shared world of teaching, and they are so much more alike than they are different. This capacity reflects very poorly on the United States. It is high time that it ended. Thank you, Bill. Let me wrap up by asking you for your thoughts on what you think the Biden administration should do with respect to U.S.-China academic exchanges. Are there things that you would recommend the administration change, modify, or put in place? The Biden administration has moved slowly, extremely carefully in assessing uh, U.S.-China relations, but I do think that it is time that it moved more forcefully to show its support of educational exchange. The Biden administration did, and this was very welcome, very early on after the inauguration, vastly expand and speed up the issuing of visas by international students to the United States particularly in China, when it was also very difficult because of COVID and other things to do so. So they deserve very, very high marks for that. But there's some other things that they can and should do, in my view, right away. So the Trump administration canceled the Fulbright program. And I can't think of a dumber thing for an American administration to do. A program established by Senator Fulbright to expand American knowledge of the world and the world's knowledge of the United States, broadly speaking, at multiple levels of scholarship. I myself was a Fulbright scholar in Taiwan in the late 1970s. I would never be doing what I'm doing today if I did not have that Fulbright. I think that the Biden administration should restart the Fulbright program overnight. They could do it tomorrow. There's no reason not to. We closed a Chinese consulate in Houston. They closed one in Chengdu. In both cases, not for the best of reasons, but understandably, uh, it was a tit for tat on the Chinese side. These should be reopened because our citizens actually need more consular support and reopening in order to facilitate the flow of visas and so on. It's a positive and easy symbol to give. We need to have a series of confidence building measures that show the importance of this relationship. On the Chinese side, when I accompanied Harvard's president back out to China in the spring of 2019, we met with President Xi Jinping, and the purpose of that meeting, as really defined by President Xi Jinping, was to try to enhance Chinese-American educational exchanges, particularly at a time of political difficulty. And remember, in 2019, it's still in the Trump administration era, a time of really great tensions between the United States and China. And I remember two phrases that came out of that. Our president, President Bacow, said it's important that universities find a way sometimes to work together, even at a times when governments cannot. And President Xi said that he had told President Trump, if you limit the number of Chinese students coming to the United States, you are giving a great gift to Europe and the rest of the world. As it were, this is talent that is ours to lose. And they're both right, in my view. But I think right now, and this is how I feel about our responsibility at Harvard, our job and our task is to maintain connections between China and the United States, irrespective of the political tensions, to maintain student-to-student relationships. And our undergraduate and graduate student clubs and bodies have strong relationships with their Chinese counterparts. 
to maintain faculty connections in areas of research and in teaching whenever COVID again makes that possible. Because ours is a shared world of scholarship. I've just finished a book, which will be published next year, called Empires of Ideas. It's about building, creating really, the modern university, first in Germany in the 19th century, then in the United States in the 20th century, and now in China in the 21st century. These are three great leaders. The Germans led the world of universities in the 19th century. The Americans certainly still at the top of the game at the first part of the 21st century. And China has the capacity to lead that world in the latter part of the 21st century. Thank you, Bill. That's a wonderful, positive note to end on. And really, thank you very much for such great discussion, as well as the long history that you've laid out of how we got to today, as well as your in-depth dissection of some of the problems, obstacles that we face moving forward. Thank you very much, Bill, for joining us today. Thank you.